Hi, this is Tom Darling, and I'm your host for this episode of Conversations with Classic Boats. This episode brings you something old and something brand new, and both right in line with the big story of our day. Welcome to the deep summer edition of Conversations with Classic Boats. <clears throat> this is episode three, and a double session, almost an hour. We, like so many sailors, are trying to figure out how to have fun with boats. All of our favorite classics are nowhere to be seen. Event after event canceled. Our answer was, go small. Bring your beach chairs, for those of you who can't stand too long, and let's go model yachting. For you modern miniature yacht racers, let's go radio sailing. This was the message that we got from the medium of the pandemic, the internet. Through that, we met a modern model boat ace, standing in his Florida home, hopefully safe and sound, deeply tanned, with his radio sailing boat on the stand in his kitchen table. This was a new, new thing, kitchen table sailing. Sailors will look back at the summer of 20, 101 years after the Spanish flu of 1918-19, and say the new thing was radio sailing way back in the summer of the Great Lockdown. Transport yourself, as we often seem to do, to the Gilded Age, in those early heady days of captains of industry racing their naphtha launches to work and backing syndicates for monstrous America's Cup boats. For most people, the recreational craze was bicycling. Biking even led to the newest leap of technology, flying. Think about it. The Wright brothers started in a bike shop. After the biking craze and before the real roaring 20s led to the depths of the Great Recession, there was yachting and there was boating. Yachting was still a richer man's sport. There was a form of boating that was more democratic. That was miniature yacht sailing. And that was for everyone. Fathers and sons, families built their boats, be they pond yachts carved out of a spare piece of wood or sophisticated plank-on-frame scale model beauties constructed to the new international rule. And they took to water, any water, a pond, a reservoir, any bit of flat water that would float a boat. There were model boat clubs far and wide. You only have to walk off New York's 5th Avenue at 72nd Street, peer over the wall, and there it is, the Central Park Yacht Club, circa 1907. Models also served some very practical purposes. On one hand, they were built to demonstrate designs and get the client's approval for the final build. There were no test tanks. You made a model of your design. You sailed it to see how it performed. When you, the new owner, paid the bill, you ended up with a boat and your sailing model. But as we said, model yachting, miniature yacht racing, a highly democratic form of sailing. The sailing middle class went modeling for recreation on urban ponds and water courses. The equipment, putting aside the radio controls that came out in the 1960s and 70s, has remained the same. A boat, a stand to put it on, a long stick, say a piece of bamboo, with a pad at the end to jab the boat away from the bank, a sponge to empty the hole, and a good toolkit, and the time to fiddle with your boat. The rationale for modern RC, i.e. radio-controlled sailing, amplified in this topsy-turvy world of COVID-19, tells you where the roots of model boating are. There are good reasons for its growth. The model racing rules are now codified at the end of the rule book. 
For those who are older but keen to continue in the sport, the modern radio sailing vessel is a social elixir, and the sailing experience is in the palm of your hand. Today, we'll cover one of the oldest competitive aspects of boating, model sailing, miniature yacht sailing, a pastime of sailors as old as man and his first toy boat on a pond or a stream. And we'll give you a live listen to the newest event in radio sailing on the historic island in the great harbor of the island of Nantucket, 35 miles out to sea. You, the listener, will experience radio sailing when we bring you a live audio stream of the Nantucket Community Sailing Dragonflight Radio Sailing Invitational. But first to our sponsors, Windcheck, the magazine and website that covers the sailing scene of today from New York to the Cape, with a fresh look at competition and the sailing environment. Find them on the web at windcheck.com. And look for the August issue. That issue has part two of our exploration of Alarion, Captain Nat Harrisoff's personal boat late in his career, and the inspiration of designs that floated hundreds of classic wooden boats in the Northeast. And many of you may have seen Conversation with Classic Boats featured in a recent email blast of Team One Newport, loyal customers, Look at those anti-COVID neck gaiters. Mad Martha has done it again with custom face coverings for this crucial time. She spent hot summer days constructing hundreds of these so sailors can be protected as they head back to the water. Team One Newport, the foul weather gear experts. See their email blasts from now to Labor Day as we all get back on the water. Call them or reach them on the web at teamonenewport.com. And our sponsor of the month, how appropriate. Chuck LeMahieu's RadioSailing.net, the importer of the DF-95 Dragonflight model yacht, official yacht of the Nantucket community sailing scene. You'll be hearing later from Chuck LeMahieu, the CEO of RadioSailing.net, about this bundle of fun later in the episode. And a shout out to Diana Brown, of Nantucket Community Sailing, who we work with to put on the first annual Nantucket Model E Racing event. Model boating comes to the faraway isle. We'll hear from some of the competitors in this terrific event from mid-August. The podcast is as close to live stream as we have come to date. As we are accustomed to doing, we go back in yachting time. What is the history of our topic, model yachting, the granddaddy of today's radio sailing? This history is a very personal one for me. Most of my sailing life, I've had on my bookcase a large formatted book with a creaky binding. On that binding, it says, Miniature Racing Yachts by Thomas Darling. Not me. The author was my great uncle, an industrial arts teacher in the Bronx. He taught students how to build boats. By night he was a draftsman for naval architects, Clinton Crane being the best known. Reading from the foreword of his book, I read to you what he said about naval architecture and what he thought about it. Naval architecture and construction is not an exact science, rather it is an art. Scientists and mathematicians have given us enough information, data, and formulae to assure us of certain definite results. When all is said and done, however, the outcome of the success of a design is a gamble. 
It is this feature of the sport or pastime which tends to attract and hold the interest of many devotees. I ask you, has anyone ever described the cerebral essence of boat design better? He went on to describe the state of the model or miniature yachting, as he called it, community as of the early 1930s. The sport is orderly and well-organized. The Model Yacht Racing Association of America, a national agency, is organized for the purpose of creating an interest in miniature yacht building and racing, and concerns itself with arranging races between a representative of the United States of America and representatives of foreign countries. Model yacht clubs are springing up all over the country. We find them in, and he lists, 12 or other locations. The purpose of the book, he said, was that its contents will be of help to the person desiring to sail miniatures for the pure fun of seeing them in their element to the racing model yachtsman. That was in the mid-1930s, in the heart of the Depression, arguably worse than even today. But his book has a pretty clear message. Have a great time out there playing with model boats when you may or may not have access to their bigger cousins. My Uncle Tom, born on City Island, moved to New Rochelle, was a water rat. Amid all of the old brownie pictures of him in the box under my bed, he's either sailing or getting off or getting on a boat. Much of it was solo sailing. Uncle Tom was our family's Captain Nat, with a little touch of Captain Jack Sparrow. So like other sailing characters we have featured in the past, we look to what their legacy was. In the Conversations with Classic Boats website, you can see his model legacy in pictures of my brother and my own 1 to 10 model R boats. Mine is called Wave. The book's pictures include Bubbles, my brother's twin model, sailing on a pond in Westchester County. You can see them, 56 inches long, graceful swans with gleaming white hulls and blue bottoms, delicately planked decks. The Monster Reliance model being installed at the Harrisoft Marine Museum in Bristol, Rhode Island, is roughly three and a half times larger. But these early 20th century models built before the J-boats are themselves you know, a paragon of American marine construction. Model boats were built by one of three methods. The table of contents for miniature racing yachts outlines those alternatives for the model builder. First, building the hull by the solid block method. Remember Captain Nat and his omnipresent half model in hand whittling and fairing design history from a block of wood, from which he then took the model measurements to translate form to paper. If you forget, go back to episode two to hear more on what we've talked about, the Harrisoft method. Second method, building the hull by the lift or bread and butter method of construction. This is described as the method commonly used when building half models for the use of naval architects and shipbuilders. Take a series of long rectangular wood shapes, glue them together, put them in a vise, and start scraping. Eventually, voila, half a hull. Repeat on the other side, 
another half and glue the two halves together. Pretty common this was for the more sophisticated models of the early 20th century. Hundreds of half models and many miniature yachts were built this way. Then finally, method number three. We come to my own family's boats building methodology. Building the boat by the rib frame and plank method of construction. Plank and frame. This was my own model waves birthright. Employ a backbone or keel, ribs, frames or timbers, and planking to form the skin and deck. Leaving the intricacies of planking aside, there are actually 12 pages describing different forms of planking in the book. Suffice it to say that this method gives you pure boat, fair and true. The offset tables, remember the mystery of the missing offsets in episode two on the Illarian design? Tell the story of how the final lines will turn out. Remember the Harrisoft method. My great uncle built 56 inch model boats the same way upside down. The later chapter on spar building and quote, how to make fittings covers all the fittings suitable on a modern racing miniature. Like Captain Nat in Bristol, this is a case of backward integration on a one to 10 scale. Each boat has a web of very little lines connected to tiny pieces of hardware, the name of which we all believe will stump any modern yachtsman that is not immersed in model yachting. What is this mystery word? The word is Bowser. Not a dog, but a piece of hardware, better known to modelers as a Bowsy. This is a term written about disgust ad nauseum on the YouTube videos posted by miniature yacht jockeys from South Africa to San Francisco. The precise word is Bowser's. The explanation for this crucial crossword puzzle term in an online citation says, Bowsers are used to regulate the lengths of sheets and halyards. Huh? It's a miniature yacht equivalent of a cleat. All model boats are rigged and controlled with a number of these oval metal objects through which the little, little lines go. I remember in high school, going in search of the real vintage hardware to relaunch my own boat in the local pond. Rigging was handmade. I remember there was a shop in Brooklyn Heights run by an older Norwegian gentleman downstairs in a brownstone who himself had a fantasy land of small metal parts, spreaders, shrouds, turnbuckles. It was like a Santa's workshop of miniature yachting. That was 50 years ago. That spot in Brooklyn Heights is now a Starbucks. The construction of bubbles and wave, oak frames planked with white cedar. My brother's boat and my boat, we kept them whole by keeping wet sponges inside the boat to keep it from drying out and cracking. But even so, over the years, the decks are cracked, filled in with putty and old varnish. They weighed without the rig 25 pounds. You move them with a handle that was set inside on the keel. You put the rig in, carry it to the water, Adjust the bowsies, and off you go. Take yourself back to the 1960s when my family last sailed these two miniature R-boats together. In the water they go, 56 inches of classic model takes across the water. It's really a two-man game, one to watch and one to anticipate the path and be ready to fend off from one side of the water or another. 
It's still hard for me to imagine that these boats sailed in fleets with bow bumpers in locations like Playland Lake in Rye, New York. So that was model yachting in the classical age. What now in this summer of 2020? Some colorful, colorful characters, including a number who are iconic to the modern age of the modern boating industry, back to the 70s, have developed an interesting fascination with miniature yacht racing. It's all about the age and stage. One such is Bob Johnstone, now of Charleston, South Carolina. You know him as one of the founders of J-Boats, with his younger brother, Rod. They grew up in Stonington, Connecticut. They were the godfathers of the line of boats that in the 1970s revolutionized the competitive sailing scene of our time. It was the J-24 that was an instant classic that drew the hot intercollegiate sailors from the 1970s and created the ecosystem for the growth and excellence of U.S. one-design keelboat sailing over the last 40 years. Bob is a born salesman, grew up in companies like Quaker Oats, then AMF, the bowling company, which happened to own a boat business called Alcourt, the Sunfish. Bob is always enthusiastic. He's enthusiasm with a capital E. My favorite Bob story comes in the summer of 1977. My brother and I were trying to win the Rudder Trophy the championship of MORC, the long-gone Midget Ocean Racing Club. We were sailing a Pearson 28, late model Morsi boat, intended to compete with the Rockets like the Morgan 30 and the Chance 30. In the key Faulkner Island race, after a long foggy night, we found ourselves halfway in the lead with sun coming up, no one in sight. But as it got light, we looked on either side of us and we saw identical boats each with an adult and a couple of little kids eating cereal out of those cereal boxes that you got when you opened them up and poured the milk inside. I looked at these boats with binoculars. What is that? No numbers on the sails. We looked at the scratch sheet. Ragtime, top of the world. They rounded just ahead of us at the east end of Fuckers Island, and they disappeared. Who were those masked men? That was a J-24 instant classic, and they went on to clean up at Block Island Race Week, and a legend was born. Now, what is Bob Johnstone in 2020 doing messing around with model boats and radio sailing? He gives us this backstory of how he came to start a thriving radio sailing fleet in a pond behind a senior community in Charleston, South Carolina. How did he get the idea of this model yachting? We moved to Charleston, and we moved to a um, thinking, not wanting to live in the kids' attic someday. Mm-hmm. Um, we we decided it was time for us to find a nice uh, senior um, uh, community, um, and there was a fantastic one here in Charleston called Bishop Danston, which happened to have uh, a couple of ponds and a yacht club uh, formed by the by the residents. And uh, so they, and they were sailing model boats. They had lasers and, and um, uh, they had some um, uh, Nirvanas, they're uh-huh. called. Yep. And um, so anyway, we, we um, decided, I, I said, well, this is great. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to have some friends around here. And there were about 15 people that were 
had these boats. It wasn't very active, very informal. And when looking into it, they said, well, if you really want to get serious, over at James Island, they have the Charleston Model Yacht uh, Club. And they've got, you know, all sorts of boats over there. And, but mainly the Soling was, was the most popular one. So I got Milliken to um, make a, put together a Soling for me. And I did it in the same colors, gold, with the same sail number that I'd sailed in the Olympic trials out in San Francisco in, in uh, 1972. And <laughs> so I had my, my miniature mm -hmm. Olympic, my Olympic boat. So anyway, I was, I was sailing that in a combination between going out on uh, James Island uh, Park. Uh, on, they sailed on uh, Wednesdays and Sundays. And then sometimes in, uh, here in James Island, or here at, at Bishop Gadsden, um, when, when there, there was a conflict between, or there wasn't a conflict with uh, James Island. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that, that's how it started. Bob soon found that one design sailing, even for miniature yachts, was really the thing for him. One day I took my sewing out I was sailing with, on, on Wednesday it was open open sailing. And they've been doing the same thing anyway. They have, they, on Sundays they have what they call their, um, their scoring days. Yeah. Meanwhile, the other Wednesdays and, and any other day they sail, it's open. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they don't really keep score. Every race is, every race is, you know, just for fun. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I would take the soling out there on Wednesdays. And one Wednesday I went out there, and this was in late February. And I was the single soling, and there's seven of the DF-95s. Mm -hmm. And I was saying to myself, you know, I really am a one-design sailor. And and so I should get a, I should get one of these DF-95s. Okay. When was that? What year was that? That was just February. Okay. So recently. Uh, very recently, yeah. and so then I I came back, went online, ordered one. This is Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. It arrived Monday morning. I put it together, went out, and won two races on Wednesday. <laughs> I said, "This is one heck of a product." Yeah, um, <laughs> that that can happen. That it comes all in, the, in that box to put together, and it's basically it's ready to race. Mm -hmm. Boat in a box. Um, Boat in a box. That's what I called it. Yeah. It, it, it's. I mean, I thought we did a good job with J24s, but this was incredible mm -hmm. in terms of a one design program. We're now up to 17 here. Yep. Um, and I mean, we it, it, the previous record I think was eight eight boats on the starting line in total. We we're having like 15 and 16 a day right now, split up between two sessions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because for coronavirus restrictions. Right. <clears throat> You know, we have these two groups of four sailors seated six feet apart, with the two groups split 20 yeah. feet apart. Mm -hmm. So that gives eight on the starting line, still within reasonable mm. distance from the starting line. And then since we we have to have two sessions a day to accommodate everybody. So yeah. it's one at, one at 10 and one at four, and people get to choose, got to choose which one they liked, and it worked out pretty well. And there you have it. 
Ultimate pandemic sailing, social distancing, everyone in their own chair. I have to admit, I had the same kind of stoked reaction when I saw the YouTubes of today's modern model, yachting instant classic, the Dragonflight DF-95 RC raceboat. 950 millimeters, that's 37.04 inches. And I asked Bob, what was his first impression of this boat? DF-95 only weighs yeah. five pounds. Yeah. And, you, you know, you just lay it fully rigged in the, on the, uh, the deck of your Jeep Cherokee. Jeep yeah. Cherokee. Is, that, is that what most people do? They just flip down the back of their SUV or See, whatever? Open the back and lay the boat in there. You don't uh-huh. have to do anything. Just throw it in the water each time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a very cool looking boat. I mean, it, it you know it looks kind of like a little TP fifty two with a little bit more rocker, but uh, and watching it on the tape, it was you know extremely fast. Oh, I was wa- I was watching it, saying, "Oh my dear, that thing is really moving." But um, so so you are, are are you are the fleet captain, fleet construction maven. You sound like you're everything for this fleet. What would they do? I am, basically am. I mean, I. I, I, I volunteer I offered I came up with a cost price for the package I didn't make any money on it sure in fact I underwrote it by about 60 bucks a boat right okay um, and and to get the whole thing started and I said look a lot of these guys are not that good threading needles and stuff like that I mean little thousands yeah and so I said look I'll put your boats I'll even put your boats together I mean I, here I I sold sold MJM yachts to my son Peter and I was working 14 hours a day seven days a week yeah and all of a sudden here I am I've got a little extra time so yeah what could be more fun than putting both together yeah. so anyway that's uh, what I did what is the word bowsy and where did it come from bowsy is a little teeny thing that's about not even hardly an inch long and it's got three holes drilled in it and it's used as the adjuster on these lines, just the line that you use is, is that comes to the Bose Dyneema. And I, you may have seen my notes. So you know, we were switching best, over, right? Go to the spec, get the Spectra stuff. Yeah, we are. And because you can, you can, it stays stiff enough. Yeah. Makes sense. Cut it off clean, then it goes through these teeny holes. Yeah. So you, you put it down one hole, back up the next hole, out around whatever you're hauling in, back, and then you dead end it in the third hole. Yeah. Sounds, um, like, sounds like something off a clipper ship. You know, they must have had yeah. they, they must have had them on old ships. So you, this is a relatively recent venture for you. And and any surprises, positive or negative? What what about these boats? They're made in China. They're made by a company that is essentially a slot car manufacturer um, called Joysway. Joysway, yeah. which is in Guangdong. I, I I a lot of my work is in China. Uh, it's in Dongyang, which is. The really the shoe capital of China, of all places. But it, there is a very substantial toy making industry in that part of China. Uh, so I just have the image of these people <laughs> sitting, leaving their dormitory. I said, "What are you going to work on today?" I said, "Well, I, I'm working on boats for America." You know, I said, "I said, hmm, I wonder if they know what they're doing." Actually, it started out in the UK. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and they uh, and, and they were trying to come up with the. Um, this one fellow there, um, 
remember his name anyway. They, they, you can go look into the history of it. It looks like a, it looks like a, you know, it looks like a Laurie Davidson design or a Botan design. I mean, it looks like a very modern design when you look at it. It doesn't look like a typical round, deep keeled model boat, you know, which most, most of them are. It's quite different. Very different. It's an evolution. There's another similar design in the UK, smaller one. And the first boat they came out with was a 65. And that, is very similar to what the um, um, 95 DF, DF, yeah. DF is like. And then yeah. the 95, the 95 was a evolutionary uh, improvement on the 65. What what have the surprises been to you? And things that you've had, had to deal with or things that pleasantly surprised you? Well, one of the pleasant surprises is the fact that you've got a single carbon rig and you don't have any of the rigging that you get in these other boats. Yeah. And the rigging was always a, an issue in terms of uh, corrosion and catching on things and getting it set and getting the boat tuned. And, I mean, these kind of, once you get that mast in the, in the slot and the the only thing you're adjusting is the head stay and the back stay. Yeah, there's no yeah. side stays, right? What it looks like to no, me. No sides, no shrouds. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And another nice thing about that is, you know, you pick it up, you just grab it. Yeah. By the tip of the spar, drop it in, and then pick it up with one hand, and then take your other hand and grab the keel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you can walk around. You can put it over your shoulder and walk with a with the sails parallel to the ground in any wind. Yep. And just you know go anywhere with it. Okay. Not, you know, well, it weighs five pounds, so it's it's, it's, it's really handy. Yeah. Where, where the other ones, you know, was you had to have special carry handles and brackets and. Yeah, you know, I think my, I know the uh, EC12 weighed 25 pounds. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, my my models, my models. We have old our my brother and I have. My uncle was a designer, meaning he didn't do the design; he did the plans. He was a vocational arts teacher in the Bronx, but he he did he drew uh, boats. My uncle was a tinkerer with those old bar, our boat models. Bob brought his taste for innovation and natural tinkering instincts to his local pond. Now, that's real fleet building. He even bought the boats, assembled them, and talked his neighbors into buying them from him. No wonder J-Boats sold a zillion J-24s over all those years. The R-Boats were very popular. They were the J-24 of 1925. (laughs) If you you were a gentleman sailor in the mid-20s, you had your mistress, so you put her out in the back, right? There's a little place to sit. I think that's why Northern Light has that. Um... And you would go sail around for the day. And that was your, you know, these boats were, our boats roughly between 48 and 53, 54 feet. So, yeah. so this model is heavy. It's a planked model with a lot of lead in it. So it's not, not easy to move. We don't move it anymore. We don't sail it anymore. Interesting. So, so five pounds, five pounds from probably 50, 45 pounds is the evolution from 1925 to, uh, 2020. I think the performance um, surprised me. I the uh, how responsive it was, and also the fact that properly tuned, like on that sheet I sent you. Yep. Um, properly tuned, you put that boat in the water, it'll sail a straight line without steering. In other words, it, the the right hand the right hand knob on your fly sky yep. uh, transmitter pops into, into center 
when you're when you're not steering right or left. So mm-hmm. if the boat is boat is well tuned and balanced, it just keep tracking straight. Yep. Which is unusual. I yep. mean, the other boats could. Um, you had to keep steering them all the time. This boat, you get momentarily distracted, or you can't see your boat for a minute. You just leave it going straight. Yep. And you're you're going to be okay. Which that's that's a that's a nice that was a pleasant surprise. Now that's why you put the color on the top so that you if they get caught right. caught in a, in a in a group that you can identify right. your boat. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah, so that, and that that's done with magic marker, and you can get all sorts of colors. Of yeah, magic yeah, sure. Well, the, I think the the your rainbow idea really caught people's imagination there because you know Nantucket the the rainbow is somewhat of a uh, archetypal type of iconic, certainly iconic thing when they have the days when everyone pulls out their beetle cat from their yard, dumps it in the water, yeah. and tries to get it back before it sinks. Right. Most people don't use them. I think Nat Philbrick's the only yeah. one who actually still Op- races. Opera, Opera yeah. House Cup. Yeah. yeah. That's a wise idea, coloring the top of your main and jib. On Nantucket, the morning of the Opera House Cup, that island's iconic classic boat race, several dozen of what we call rainbows, wooden beetle cats, parade in the harbor past the Brand Point Light, one of the oldest in America. They all have different colored sails. That goes back to the days of an artist named Gardner who sold color postcards to the, to the tourists. So, should we lobby to add the Dragonflight fleet to this parade? The Charleston DF-95 fleet struck a chord in racing sailors denied competition by the coronavirus. Bob hit the nail on the head. Boat in a box, sailing with natural social distancing, put the boat in the back of your SUV and take it home. All natural for the time. Well, basically, what I did is I described the situation here. Yeah. And he, what he asked for was what are the what are the good things that have come about from the coronavirus uh, thing, and so I laid it out and I said, okay, there are three things that come out of this. One is, first of all, you you don't really see the potential of what something may be until you get totally immersed in it, and. I got totally immersed in this DF program, and the first the first thought is, my God, think of all the 55 plus um, communities yeah. um, around the country um, with a pond, yeah. and, and and then interface that with the baby boomer generation, the older, older, oldest of which is 75 right now, yeah. um, that is about to leave their normal sailing and populate these, these places that are already doing it actually. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and then you think, well, sailing and, and, and how many of them going into these places are, are trying to find a, a spot like that. The man who put Bob into the radio sailing game hails from McKinney, Texas in the Houston region. You gotta love a guy who answers the phone, Howdy, how can I help you? Chuck LeMahieu. Chuck approaches radio sailing like a Bronco Buster. He's handled a lot of radio control models, and he likes his current ride, the Dragonflight DF-95. We'll hear from Chuck about his approach to radio sailing and how he thinks it will grow like wildfire in the coming years. 
tell about your experience with model yachting and how you got to the dra- how you got to the dragon flight. Sure. I mean, you 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 you're never lost for words in my experience. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, no, basically, I got started in mall yachting about mid '90s. Uh, started one of the. There were a lot of custom built boat options out there, but I was never really a builder. So, uh, one of the boat kits that was available was called the Victoria, and it was a really inexpensive. Quite honestly, a very poor sailing kit, but it was 99 bucks, and it was available at Hobby Lobby or any of the mass retailers. Um, so I got started with model yachting at radio sailing back then, uh, and we we basically bought two Victoria kits. Uh, the distributor happened to be in Dallas, so we talked to him, and we found out there had been something like you know, 10,000 units sold worldwide. Uh, and so we decided to form a class based on that and uh, ended up becoming, quickly becoming one of the largest classes in AMYA. So back even back then, it, it kind of demonstrated the fact that you didn't need to have uh, a three or $4,000 custom-built boat to have fun with sailing. Right. Um, well, you were saying that for the hobbyist, it was more of a building uh ethos as opposed to a sailing ethos you know that people well, yeah and yeah absolutely and and basically if you look at how model yachting and radio sailing have developed over you know the last hundred years it started with main sailing uh and they were all and like it's very it's very similar a very similar path for airplanes any of the other radio control uh hobbies out there they, they all started with plank on frame, monocote, you know, building building wings, uh, very, you know, very hobby-oriented sorts mm. of uh, ways to make these boats go and mm-hmm. planes go. Uh, but, and, and, to engage, and to get the boats go, they were either built plank on frame wood, which are just beautiful boats, um, or they were built with fiberglass, you know, build a mold, lay, lay down layers of fiberglass just like you would any other Sailboat, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened in the in in the late in the nineties and and certain into early two thousand is planes started coming out with ready to fly kits and park flyers and things that made it much more accessible to the general public. And it really took radio sailing a long time to get there. There were kits out there like the RC Laser um, that came around in the mid nineties about then that were that were there. Um, but really, still, it was dominant, the hobby and the sport, you know, internationally, it's a sport. If you look at international classes like the Marblehead, the IOM, they when they, they have regattas of 70 boats regularly. They have world champ, you know, yep. world sailing, world championships. So it's never, it was never a hobby of those guys. Those guys considered, have been considering a sport for a long time. Right. And in America, even though we've had the international classes here, it never really caught on like that. It was still, you know, the biggest classes here are the Soling One Meter, the EC12. Um, really more hobbyist kits than, than racing kits, even though the guys raced them. They didn't race them in the manner that they did in Europe. So, hmm. uh, so the, to get back to what I was saying, the ready-to-fly revolution hit planes um took a while to get to to 
boats, but there were other kids out there that, that did come along, and eventually, um, it just took it just took a group of guys, and this is the guys that started the DF, and they came out with the Dragon Force 65, which was really based on one of the international kits, the, the, and, and, the, and it comes from the genesis of the racing crowd. So they're really, they were really designed to, to be more of a racing boat yeah. than a hobbyist boat. And, and the key to that is making sure that it sails good. Mm-hmm. The problem you have with a lot of the ready-to-race kits is they're just, they just don't sail good. Mm-hmm. And, and sailors, you can, you can do a lot of things to a boat. You can trick it up. But sailors know something that sails well when they sail it. Yep. <laughs> so you gotta have, you got to have a product that works. Yeah, and so you know, from the keel up, both the sixty-five and then the ninety-five, which came out about two, three years later, really were designed to be what we what we would consider real one design racing boats, and even in the manner of you know the big J boats, which is why you find guys like Bruce Farr and 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 Bob Johnstone getting into it because they know a good boat when they see it. Yeah, so. And they know, and they know a good boat that that sure. sails well. And you can hand this boat to anybody, and it's very easy to tan, relatively speaking. And and they understand that this boat sails well. Points yep. well, it's, and and especially the '95. It's got uh, you know a lot of modern elements of, of boat design, narrow narrow entry, a lot of forward buoyancy, keel back. Uh, it doesn't pitch pull. A, a lot of even even the high high end custom classes, if they get overpowered, they, they end up pitch bowling and, and going butt over tea kettle. Right. <laughs> the Marblehead guys always seem to, to to dread heavy wind downwind. Is that is that what they do? Right. And well, and that's what happens, and that's why in the international classes and and the kind of the, another genesis of this boat, where with its international sort of lineage, is it they, there's multiple rigs available, so that if you are serious about racing it, you can just rig down. It's just like reefing a sail. And we, we sail these boats comfortably and it wins at 20 and 30 miles an hour. Yeah. Because we have three, three, well, four rigs, but basically we use three. The A rig can handle winds generally up to about 15 miles an hour. Uh, B rig, the, the number two rig is 15 to about 20, 22 miles an hour. And then the sea rig can go from from there to about 27. And I'm talking straight line wind, not just gusts. Sure. Um, and then the D rig, which honestly we very rarely I've ever even seen used in competition. It's a little superfluous, but mm-hmm. it's for it's it's your true storm rig. Um, it's you know about anything above that uh, if you feel brave enough to stick your boat out there. But you know the the great part of the 95 is because it's so well designed and. And, it, and there's a lot of quality of that design built into it. It's a very watertight boat, um, very very forgiving. And Put that, boat in that, the box. Well, and that's and that's kind of what we're going for. It's 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 a, it's a ready. We, we call it a ready to race kit, mm-hmm. and it's not truly ready to race because you can't just take it out of the box and go sail, right? right? There's some assembly required, and you know we have a pretty detailed instruction manual, and there's lots of information out there on how to assemble it. But if you just follow the, the very detailed instructions, and it'll take you about the first time out, probably four or five hours, if you just sit down and do it. And, and most of that's involved in just rigging the sails for the boat. Right. But if you do that, 
you're gonna you're both gonna be fast out of the box if you follow the instructions, which is rare in radio sound because like any sailboat, they require tuning, they require shaking down a little bit. Um, but because because of the simplicity of the rig, even though it's a, it's still a it's still called a, a masthead rig on the ninety five, it's very very forgiving to to. to get on the water and tune and race so yeah. it makes a very level playing field and I was talking to somebody last night one of the really great things about this for sailing is you can we you can bring together a lot of different genres of sailors easily in, in a real one design environment I mean you can bring a TP you know you could bring the TP52 world champion and the laser world champion and the J80 world champion and whoever Taylor Canfield, who's, by the way, a big fan of the DF boats. You can bring all these guys together in a, in a real manner and have one boat that they could sail against each other, and it's all about the sailing. It's not about what boat they're in and, and what, what the conditions are, you know. The younger ones, they know how to use these controls. That's that's somewhat daunting. When you see well, the... And that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the hardest part, I think, for, for, for your average big boat sailor and people are just getting into radio sailing the hardest part is not the sailing part the hardest part's putting themselves on the boat and translating their thumbs and their brain as to what tack they're on how how are the boats performing when they're not on it mm-hmm. and that's that's you know you a lot of times and it's, it's kind of a running joke but even I do it. Uh, you'll, you'll see guys that are they're racing. I mean, we, we like tilt to one side if the boat's healing. I mean, we just right, right, right. Kind of tend to be you put you, you put yourself in a place where you are on the boat and you're racing uh, like you would in, in, in any big boat race. The cool thing is we all have fun that when we're sailing is you know being on a broad reach and planing the boat. Uh, you know, getting on a wave and surfing the boat downwind. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's all without a spinnaker. You sure. Know? So it's. Uh, to scale, if you if you put that if you put that to scale, like the conditions you're talking about, you're talking about Southern Ocean racing sure. type of conditions. Right. Roaring so for, roaring forties. It looks like the roaring forties in that picture. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Now, how many boats? The the D ninety five is what in its third season, second season being imported? No. Uh, uh, going on our uh, well fourth year, fourth full year. And uh, have about have about four thousand. We've sold in the U.S. Probably roughly fifteen thousand worldwide. Wow, wow! And the fact that it's so forgiving, it's such a user friendly boat too. Right. Um, it's not. That's that's. I think that's the key because people can see, they can pick it up, they can see how easy it is to sail, and they can have fun with it. And ultimately, I, I think one of the great things, one of the things that radio sailing can do is really bring you know. For years, I mean, I've been a member of U.S. Sailing for 30 years, 40 years, <laughs> and that entire time, they're always looking for, and yacht clubs are always looking for ways to get new people in, yep. promote sailing, and here, here you have this thing, which has been sitting there, and and unfortunately, I think a lot of yacht clubs just consider it toy boats, but if they start embracing it, like the Chicago Yacht Club has, as real fleets within their community, a real sailing activity, suddenly you find that now you have a whole new way to recruit new people, train juniors on how on the basics of sailing tactics and, and rules, um, bringing in brand new people to the sport. But really, if you take it, any time we've taken this boat and put in the hands of junior sailors, and they've actually match raced with them or used 
them in a real racing type of situation, they find themselves able to kind of see the entire course and see what's happening, unlike they can maybe in an Opti, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, you know, or, or on a chalkboard. You get real practical experience in seeing how multiple boats sail, where your tactics are, where the wind's coming from, in a bird's eye kind of view. It gives them a, a it kind of gives them a different perspective. And I, I got to tell you, I've got a couple articles coming out in our our uh, DF newsletter of guys of, of guys that have won national championships in big boat classes that used radio sailing to to learn how to because to to, do, to, do, to, do, to be, get more confidence at starts mm-hmm. to get better mm-hmm. tactics. Because the one thing that we do do when we when we sail regattas, we'll get 30, 30, 40 races in a full day. That's a lot of you races. Know, so you get a lot of starts. You get a lot of rule eighteen situations at marks. You get <laughs> yep. you get all kinds of situations. You just you know you may not run into a couple times in three or four races over years in big boats. You know mm-hmm. when you, when the courses are miles long and you know you you're, you're most of the time most of those guys are playing follow the leader sure. and actually using tactics half the time. So. Uh, it, it, it makes it makes it, it brings I think it, it can help raise the level of somebody's tactical game and their rules game so that they, they become better big boat sailors on, on their on whatever the other classes they choose to sail yeah fleets for the DF95 have popped up in the hottest sailing venues Newport Rhode Island where three clubs combined for 40 boats including 20 at sail Newport Marblehead with a dozen craft piloted by the likes of Billy Lynn director of the Harrisoft Marine Museum, and a whole bevy of racing sailors looking for a new ride. The new kid on the Dragonflight block is Nantucket. Meet Diana Brown. She runs Nantucket Community Sailing, an organization that takes a 49-square-mile island and eager sailors to create one of the most vibrant sailing scenes in the U.S. today. In terms of innovation and financial backbone, only Sail Newport, with the tradition and accessibility to so much of the professional industry, has a program with the same outstanding characteristics of youth sailing, community access, and just plain sailing enthusiasm. The major event and funding source, aside from development, is the Nantucket Race Week, Eight days of competition, from the harbor to the sound, eight to 80-year-old competitors, finishing up with the Opera House Cup, which since 1973 has collected the classic boats of New England to sail in the choppy seas and excellent sea breezes of Nantucket Sound. We asked Diana, what were the options? Andrew Caller and Grant, coach, program developer, godmother of the Jobson Sailing Center at the Great Harbor Yacht Club. The modern yacht club built 20 years ago on the site of an old shipyard. Carolyn had had her prior experience with model yachting when she ran sailing operations at Great Harbor in the 2010s. As she said, it all went back to when she was the director of sailing and her friend Gary Jobson brought along a friend who had a large J-class sailing model. That's over six feet long. The idea was to stir up interest in getting them for junior sailing to teach sailing but as Carolyn explained, keeping these two leviathans on the, on the premises was a little bit too much. 
They were heavy, and quite frankly, she was more than a little afraid to let them go out. But it gave her the idea to, again, do the research and find a class that would work well sailing in Nantucket's flat water, mooring-clogged harbor. And she came upon a Chinese-made 28-inch plastic boat, speedy, low aspect ratio, called the DF-65. Enter Chuck LeMahieu, model, radio sailing entrepreneur. The guy who greets you in his FaceTime session with Howdy. He is a Texas enthusiast of radio sailing. That Chuck had met the English designer and cat architect of the original DF-65 and thought that a bigger boat would be appropriate for the American market. Satisfying people who were either because of age or interest, more interested in model yachting than they were in their traditional boats. And for sure, this is a new age radio controlled experience. You push a button on the back on the transom and on it goes. You watch the, you watch the YouTubes, looks more like gaming or car racing. We asked some of the other sailors who introduced the boats, Brad Reed from Sail Newport, Billy Lynn, Paul Callahan, who runs Sail for Prevail, who sees model sailing translating to a great opportunity for adaptive sailing. But before we get to those comments, let's talk to this Dragon DF-95. Time for a commercial. Chuck Lehu in the Houston suburbs invites you to go on his website, Radio sailing.net and look at his selection of DF-65 and DF-95 boats. He's been outfitting groups from Nantucket to New Orleans. You'll hear pretty soon about the regatta we're running in Nantucket. Brad Reed will tell you about the 20 that he ordered for Sail Newport. DF-95 is the fastest growing radio sailing class in the USA. We'll remind you of the contact information at the end of the podcast. It's hot, expert radio sailing delivered by Amazon or FedEx. Classic. So on to Nantucket. Let me set the scene for you. Mid-August 2020. What is the venue? Nantucket Harbor. Dozens, probably maybe hundreds of moorings, boats, ferries, private boats. We had watched hours at the point of YouTube, which is the medium of boating worldwide, especially model boating, DIY, demonstration, from La Vagabonda and its genre of voyeuristic cruising to subsistence cruising, hardcore racing. But here on the Nantucket site, we were creating history. We were doing a video vlog podcast of the first annual Nantucket Community Sailing Radio Sailing Invitational, Friday, August 14th, 2020. Write it down. Remember it. You heard it here first. They came up with an ingenious scheme to match major donors to their very own DF-95 in the color of their choice and found that the first order of 12 sold out in no time. When the Dragonflight boxes arrived at the Great Hall of Nantucket's Egan Institute on Winter Street, 
everyone gulped. How do we put them together? Fortunately, a local model enthusiast, Mitch Carl, jumped in more than a week before the August 14th event. The boat stood, as seen in the pictures on the websites, ready to be selected by their skippers. The fleet reminded me of the historic Rainbow Fleet, immortalized in 1930 in the work of local artist William Gardner, when he created a set of colored postcards featuring a fleet of small catboats with colored sails. Most of the sailing world calls them beetle cats, but they are forever in Nantucket known as rainbows. Now we were witnessing the second coming of the rainbows, the new rainbow fleet, with magic marker annotated colored sails, masthead colors matching the hulls so you could pick out a boat in a crowd. The difference is in the steering. Today's model is controlled with a handheld console more familiar to the team participant than to their parents. One joystick for the deep carbon rudder, the other for the linked mylar main and jib attached to carbon fiber struts with truly teeny fittings. Inside the hull, a miniature winch trims the sails linked to the controls by small servos and powered by a battery pack the size of a 9-volt battery. As I said, each boat had its own hand-colored, brightly colored masthead. The better to see a start in a crowded mark scrum or at the finish. Here in Nantucket, home of so many whaling captain families, each with their own signal, each with their own color, each with their own standard, this fleet was multicolored. Raider Black, Raider Silver, two reds, two greens, a pink, purple, an aqua, a blue. Jockeys have racing silks. Radio sailors have masthead coloring that matches the top sides. It's easier to see your boat. Let's set the scene. The sailing course is the easy street cut right downtown near the Steamboat Wharf. To the south, the Old North Wharf is a collection of tastefully ramshackle gray cottages on the harbor's edge. Roll out of bed and you'd end up in the water. To the north, there's the Steamship Wharf, where the big ferries come in, the Steamship Authority, the Sea Street. Thanks to a, the local builder of Valerians, Alfie Sanford, we have a grassy stretch, 110 feet long, underneath the cottages, just right for the fleet to operate from. In other venues, you see soccer mom chairs or deck chairs assigned to each competitors, like a prize fighter. But no, everyone stands here on the nice stretch of grass, six feet apart. The participants are all in masks. There's beverage sponsorship from the local Cisco Brewery. Each team consists of two, a skipper and a tactician. In some case, father and son, mother and daughter. Thanks to one competitor, a fellow Alarian sailor, Harvey Jones, and builder of the classic spirit of tradition rocket ship outlier, this nice piece of lawn has been procured for our use, but with an invite list kept 
carefully below the COVID limit of 50. Personally, I captain one of three rescue boats on hand to separate collisions of boats stuck like Athenian Persian galleys or snagged on mooring lines as we learn the ecological issues of sailing in a small saltwater harbor. What does the race course look like? Competitors look down from the bulkheads, along with visitors to the world-famous Wharf Rat Club, situated right in the middle of the course, looking to the north. How do we describe a race course and a race sequence? Each race should last about six to eight minutes. It's a 100-yard course. Courses are generally windward lured. Barks are colored rubber balls, like dodge balls, weighted with window sashes or anchors stuck in the mud, and configured with anti-keel catching equipment below the mark to keep the bulb fin of carbon from snagging and dragging the marks. The rules, as we laugh, none that we know of. No, seriously, in the back of the rules book and interpreted liberally, we use the rules on model yachting. Our basic rules are, do no harm, be nice to your neighbor. Two of the local summer residents had sailed the DF-95 in Vero Beach in the summers, and one was present, but it was a truly amateur affair. We run through the competitor list and their sail numbers and names. The names for the Dragon Flights have some humor to them. Puff. Obvious. Pink Panther. Obvious. Big Fish. The owner's big boat is Blackfish. Seems like radio sailors have more fun. One starts to feel the anticipation as if boat and driver are like a team at the Indy 500 or the Kentucky Derby, but just for fun, no betting. But betting could follow. Imagine this. The odds on Nantucket number 10 in the fourth race at Great Harbor Eight to one. With their boats on the stand, tuned and ready to go, the field listens to the PRO give the instructions. There is a frisson of something new. Contestants, start your boats. Dragon flights, turn on. There's a button on the rear deck. In the water go boats from finger piers and over the bulkheads. Many of the sailors are practiced, but still, live competition brings on nerves. The PRO for the event, Chuck Allen from North Sales in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, deftly uses both the loud holler and a starting sequence run from an iPhone through my daughter's Bose Bluetooth speaker to signify the one-minute dinghy starts. The fleet has a few practice races before Chuck signals the first of ten races. In practice, it becomes evidently clear that few sailors are really proficient. It's also evident that the major problem on our race course is beneath the water, eelgrass. These deep carbon blades are grass catchers, perverse 
hidden obstacles. Watery vegetation and mooring lines are the fleet's arch enemy. So it's, cl it's clear that the major hazards for model yachting are operator error and battery life. Collisions result often, but at low speeds. The DF-95s are incredibly responsive upwind and down, but they easily overtack. Downwind, with the jib wung out, they are rockets. The trip from the windward march to the leeward gate can often be under a minute 30. Sailors' excitement builds as the time for the first start arrives. With a handful of minor breakdowns, sailors try to keep their boats out on the course as long as possible. With frequent trips, though, to the pit crews on the bulkheads. No Ford versus Ferrari here. The most common fault is a loose battery connection. The number six boat smokes. The pit crew confers. Sailors also conclude, as they leave their assigned posts, that finding any vantage point for better line of sight is a key element of control of radio sailing. Soon people are draped on the bulkhead, climbing on the front of boats, at the end of piers. Social distancing out the window. Let's talk a little, though, about the online commentary for the races. Hi, it's Tom Darling. We're off the world-famous Wharf Rat Club in Nantucket Harbor. It's the first annual Nantucket Community Sailing Regatta for DF-95s. Here we are, 15 seconds to go. One, crowding that leeward end. Ten, trying to cross two. Eight, right up, there they go, and they're off. All clear, all clear. Ooh, what a start. Race one and boat number four is well in the lead, followed by boat nine. A pack of boats after that. The purple boat, the red boat, the light green boat. It's easy to tell these boats apart because of the colors. We observe the practice races from our inflatable and determine that two, five, and seven look like the trifecta for the radio sailing invitational. My normal Alarian skipper, who practiced the day before under my careful eye, seems to have a series of mishaps, including smoking batteries that make the scene like an Indy 500 pit stop. Later in the racing, six to eight knots of easterly wind became 15 and control seemed to go out the window for all but the most experienced. We were sure glad for the colored hulls, the sail numbers, and the mass matching colored mastheads. Radio sailing seems to involve a lot of bumper boats and a lot of photo finishes. Unlike regular sailing, where the great get off and are gone, the radio sailor has a more even playing field, with vagaries of wind and mark pileups providing perpetual opportunity. In every sense, it was community sailing. The winner, a father and son combination, the Wardens, Alan, an ex-ace Indian sailor, who, we, as we learned, sails all winter in model yachts, and his son Henry brought home the bacon. Second was Skip Willauer, 
the local man packet one design for Captain Lo local Rhodes 19 race, and the only one else with the advantage of prior experience as he sails in the red-hot Vero Beach, Florida fleet in the winter. The third was also all in the family, two Z-Gen brother sailors with a sure video gaming background. The tactician was nine years old. Who was 12? What happened? It's just hard to tap. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like every time, every time I got to that end, I also could never like really see. Okay. Because there are like so many people. Okay. And there are people standing on the dock that at some point I was just like, I don't even know where I am. Well, we were starting to get a feeling that two, five, and seven where we were seeing that a lot. I kept getting an ion. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's not like an Indian. I mean, it doesn't go straight. No, you know, once you get it moving, it's fine. Yeah. Actually, mine was had a teeny bit of weather helm, so you kept having to kick in a little bit of. Right. But I think they all have to have weather helm, but. I think they all do. I mean, the mass is so far back. Yeah. But the. But once they start to track, they're beautiful. But I would just come up in the wind and then go, oh, stop. Uh-huh. You know? I wouldn't stop, yeah. I think, I think it might be like a Moby where you have to do a little bear away and then a... Well, it's a five-pound boat, right, with a fair bit of power. So, yeah, it's more of an ultralight boat, really. After the end of the day, after saying it would be all warm and fuzzy, we didn't need to keep score. We really did keep score. But the scene on the lawn was as any one would be in sailing, convivial just with masks. The mood was community. Everyone walked away with their regatta memento. The genuine cedar shakes shingle, the symbol of Nantucket, bearing the Nantucket community sailing logo and a scallop shell, the other symbol of Nantucket. That to conclude the Nantucket regatta, the Nantucket radio sailing regatta 2020. Talk to Chuck LeMahieu at CEO at Radiosailing.net and let him put you and your friends into a fleet of DF-95s. Or call him, 469-215-2112 in Dallas, Texas, and say howdy, Tom Darling sent me. He'll take good care of you. In the next podcast, after Labor Day, normally a wonderful sailing time in the Northeast, Hurricanes accepted. We'll, we will indulge in nostalgia, dinghy nostalgia, man and their dinghies, the story of the most famous dinghies in yachting history. Now to question time. Remember the place where I put out the corrections last time to past episodes. This is a necessary and useful exercise for the marine historian. And this item proves also that my mother reads what I write and listens to what I say. She wishes me to correct the family history. Regarding Bristol, Rhode Island, and the Harrisoft Yard, she confirms that indeed my father, Wells Darling, worked at that site, but his role was different than my memory. She points out that after my father's company, Grumman, bought Pearson Yachts, he was the accounting director for the Pioneer in fiberglass boat building. The GM he became in 1984. Thanks, Mom. 
We also, in our Alarian article, neglected to properly acknowledge the owner of Una, the first of the Nantucket Alarians built by Sanford Boat on Nantucket. Sorry, Rick. And thanks, Eric Fingers, for the correction. We also now have a copy of Alfie Sanford's great article on the building of the Nantucket Alarian, 1977-2011, to which we'll put on the website for the episode Alarian, Past, Present, and Future Perfect. We all have our own idea of history. Send in your historical moment and ideas of classic boats you want us to interview. We will be following suggestions given to us by readers, listeners, from the Cal 40 to a series of SNS boats, another pair, a duo, like Finisterre and Fidelio. Twins, again, like the Newport 29s, Dolphin and Mischief are today. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Go sailing wherever you can. Be well, stay well. Fair sailing. And if you're a sailing influencer, spread the word on the podcast, conversationswithclassicboats.com. Remember, the website is Conversations with Classic Boats. Find us through the WinCheck website. We're also on the Team Wen Newport email blasts as well. 40,000 dedicated sailors are out there. Find us, take a listen, subscribe. Give us a review. We hope to get distributed in the Middle Atlantic and Bay Area, California markets soon. So find us on the website, Conversations with Classic Boats, and or get us wherever you get your podcast. This is Tom Darling, wishing you well. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll. And we'll all